Before the sermon plays, I want to take a minute and tell you about a free resource that I'm really excited about. At Creekside, it is our goal to experience and express God's glory. One of the ways that we aim to do this is through personal sanctification, which is a fancy way of saying growing in our relationships with God. It's clear that this can be especially difficult during the Christmas season because it's so busy. And so this year, we produced a devotional booklet that is a companion to the series of sermons we're doing, one of those sermons you're about to listen to. The booklet is filled with 150 to 200 word writings that hopefully will help you to think about the birth of Jesus and the glory of God. And you can get one of those devotional booklets for free. You can get a hard copy by coming to one of our services in the month of December. But if that's not something you're able to do or ready to do, you can get an electronic version by going to wilsonville.church slash Gloria Booklet. That's wilsonville.church slash Gloria Booklet. I do think those will be a great resource for you, and I hope that you will get one. And now I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Last week we, we talked about how there was this experience surrounding the birth of Jesus, the thing we celebrate at Christmas. And this experience is centered around these guys called the shepherds. And shepherds are out in their fields watching their flocks at night, as we say and sing. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up, tells them, hey, there's, there's good news. The glory of God shines brightly in the night sky. And we talked about the glory of God being, that'll be important later, just everything that makes God better than us. And that's his, his perfection and morality, uh, his moral attributes, but also just his power and, and these marvelous things that, that we get to see sometimes as humans when God just kind of opens up the heavens. And it was one of those moments. The heavens opened up, God's glory shining, and then we saw that the angels responded to this visual manifestation of God's glory by they themselves expressing God's glory and declaring glory to God in the highest. And, and what we said last week, what I said to you, I guess, is that really uh, as we experience the glory of God in the Christmas story, then it should be our response to express that glory, express the glory of God. And in the way we live our lives, and in the way that we think, in the way that we talk, and the things that we say, and our desire to, to praise God, and the things that Brandon just prayed for as far as just sharing Jesus with other people, all of that stuff, it should be our normal response when we experience the glory of God in the Christmas story to express it. But, as Brandon prayed as well, it's not all the time, right? I mean, we know that. Like, it's, it's just not the norm. I, I think probably I speak for everybody here when I say, like, you don't go through the Christmas season going, sweet, this is a great opportunity to talk about how great God is and how great Jesus is as much as possible. And, and like, that's my goal. My number one goal this Christmas is just to express God's glory. No, you think things like, like, what Christmas party do we have to be at, and who do we need to shop for still, and is there good deals on TVs, and I mean, all of these these kind of normal things, and um, I, I think that there's a, a big reason for this, and I think that it is, we don't, we don't think about Jesus in the right way. We don't think about all that Jesus is. We don't think about the greatness of who Jesus is. And so when we, when we read the Christmas story, 
we're not really experiencing the glory of God because we're not really thinking about who Jesus is. And, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today that, uh, that I think just reveals this incredible, even glorious picture of who Jesus is. It's like if you've ever been in a situation where you're with a friend or a family member and, and they see somebody that's famous but you don't know who they are. Do you know what I mean? Uh, when I was six years old, I took a trip to Canada with my grandparents on my mom's side, and, uh, and we were outside the hotel, and Bob Hope was outside the hotel. And as a six-year-old, that was like nothing. Like, I mean, a Ninja Turtle would have been way cooler than Bob Hope, right? Like, there was nothing really, like, oh, cool. Like, I'm supposed to be excited about that, right? But and now, as an adult, knowing who Bob Hope is and the impact he had on, on culture, really, but on entertainment, like, that would be a big deal to me. But at the time, it was not a big deal. And, and so, it, it wasn't like a story that I was going to come home. I mean, it, it'd be like, oh, we saw Bob Hope, you know? But on the flip side of that, and I, I tell this story all, this is the second week in a row I've told a story that I tell all the time in sermons. But I met Robin Williams once. Once. And and it took no time for me to call everybody I knew after we shook hands outside of an In-N-Out Burger, like, hey, I met Robin Williams, got to go, need to call somebody else. Hey, I met Robin Williams, got to go, call somebody else. Like over and over and over. And I've been telling the story like at least five times a year ever since I met Robin Williams. I would love to tell you. Ask me about it after church. It was a crazy moment. Me and him sharing a look, having a time together. Asked him if he needed directions. Like, I mean, this is a real thing. And, and so you can see, I think, in those my two interactions with famous people, when you understand who somebody is and you encounter them, it's a different experience than, than when you encounter somebody, even if they're super famous, but you don't really understand uh, the greatness of who they are, or what they've accomplished, or whatever. And I think that's Christmas for most of us. Like, we understand, like a six-year-old understands, like, cool, I'm looking at Bob Hope. It's a famous person. Cool, I'm reading the story about this birth of Jesus, and I'm supposed to be impressed by that. And it seems like other people are impressed by it, and it's a big deal. I know that because we celebrate it every year. But we don't really get it, and so it's really hard for us then in, in turn to express it. And in Hebrews 1, 1 through, really, uh, the end of the book, but uh, I mean the whole book of Hebrews is about the greatness of Jesus. And in fact, the people there seem to be wrestling with this idea of whether or not Jesus or angels are greater. You can see how that kind of aligns with what I just said, right? Like, how impressed should we be with, with who Jesus is and with his coming to earth? And, and the entire book of Hebrews seems to be written in part to say Jesus is great. In fact, Jesus is greater. He's greater than the high priest who stood between you and God, Israel. And he's a greater sacrifice than the ones made in the Old Testament because his sacrifice is once and forever. And it doesn't have to happen every day or every week or every year. And, and so the, the author of Hebrews just says, look, Jesus is, is greater. And at the very beginning, he lays this foundation in these first three verses, verses one through three, it's just incredible. Like, you, you want to know about who's greater? It's Jesus. And let me tell you why, right from the very beginning of the book. And oh man, I think, I, I really believe this, like Hebrews 1, one through three, you could spend 
you could spend weeks and weeks and weeks just preaching on these verses because of all that they say about the greatness of Jesus, but I'm going to give it to you in one shot. It's going to be a long sermon. Just kidding. Uh, but in Hebrews 1.1, this is how it begins. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Kind of a weird opening to a, a letter, in my opinion. Uh, he's like telling them something that they already knew. It's a setup for what he'll say next. But, but really what he's saying is, is you people, you Jewish people, you know that God has spoken in a variety of ways throughout history. And, and we can think of it, it's probably not just limited to this, but we can think of all that we see in the Old Testament and the ways that God interacts with his people. He walks around with them in a garden, the very beginning of creation, right? He's communicating with them there. And then after the fall of mankind, after mankind rejects the ways of God, is disobedient to God, we see God communicate in, in very simple ways and, and very crazy ways. Like sometimes he'll just, he'll just compel somebody to speak on his behalf. And other times he shows up in fire on a mountain. And sometimes he fills up the temple with his glorious glory and other times he speaks in a still small voice and sometimes he speaks through a storm and at other times he speaks in his written word and and so we see that God is speaking in in really crazy and, and sometimes kind of awesome ways to people throughout history and that's what the writer of Hebrews wants you to remember at the beginning that God has spoken through stories and visions and dreams and mighty acts and theophanies and still small voice and all of these ways. And then in verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's interesting, these last days, and uh, it's an interesting idea because the last days really, uh, for the author of Hebrews and really in the New Testament, the last days are in large part from the day Jesus is born until the day Jesus comes back and takes all of us who love him and follow him uh, to be with him. And so really we see the separation by the author of Hebrews. And the separation is this. God spoke in a variety of ways right up until the day that his son Jesus was born on earth. He communicated, and this is what he's getting at, in a, a, very, a very limited way. But now in Jesus, he's spoken in a very complete way. The life application commentary says this, rather than being fragmentary and varied, it may be considered whole, focused in the person and work of Christ. The word biblical commentary says, the force of the expression is to characterize the son as the one through whom God spoke his final and decisive word. It's interesting because Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is actually one single sentence in the Greek language, which we translate from, and it's all built around just one phrase, God spoke. And it's built around that phrase because what the author of Hebrews is saying is, hey, God did speak and he's spoken forever, but now he's spoken in a new and better way, a more complete way. I think of it like this, and this won't work as well if you're younger than me, but if you're older than me this will or my age or older this will work better so it'll work for some of you uh, but I think of like uh, w if you're my age you'll understand you'll really understand I don't know if it'll work for everybody but uh, we're gonna try ready so w when when internet communication first became 
like a, a big thing, like AOL Instant Messenger, which they just killed last month. Very sad. I tried to log in on my account, but I couldn't find the password. Uh, it would have been embarrassing to read through all of that stuff. But like when I'm in middle school, internet communication becomes a thing. I remember going to my buddy Ryan's house. We'd get on there, see if any girls had messaged our AOL accounts, you know, like that was a big thing for us. But I discovered this thing. I think we all discovered this thing that was uh, kind of this phenomenon of early internet communication. And that is, if you got to know somebody even fairly well online before you met them in person, it, it created this very awkward beginning to your relationship. But that's, I don't think that's a thing if you're like five years younger than me. You're used to that. But, but for me, who kind of remembers getting my first computer and all that, you'd meet somebody, you'd talk to a girl, you'd... you'd Start talking to somebody that you had met once, kind of like we do on Facebook online, and you'd be chatting because, you know, you were trying to chat everybody up because there was like 10 people who were online, you know, as opposed to everybody. And then, and then you'd meet, and it was like uncomfortable because you felt like you, you kind of knew each other, but you had never met before. If you're 21, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. We always meet that way, right? Like that's how every relationship begins. But if you're my age, you might, you might understand that. And, and I think that's what this is kind of getting to. Like God communicated throughout history to his people, but it wasn't complete and it wasn't full until he actually stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus and you met for the first time. Even though you knew each other and you knew about God, and, and God knew you for sure, but you knew about God and you had an understanding of God and he had revealed some things, but you couldn't really know him until you actually looked him in the face and saw what he was really like. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying about Jesus, about Christmas, like there was this incomplete online form of communication that took place throughout created history. But then, then Jesus came. The son was born. Christmas happened. And now God communicated in a new and better way. And then everything else in, this, in this, these verses we'll look at today, I'm not going to talk about verse 4, but, but in, in the rest of 2 and 3, it's all about why. Why this is a better form of communication. Why God uh, is now communicating in a better, more full way with humankind through the person of Jesus. And, and in doing so, this is what's so cool about it. It just says how great Jesus is. And he says how great Jesus is. And this is how he starts. He says in, in 1, 2, whom, talking about Jesus, he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Now, two really important things about who this little baby is in his very being, in his very character, in his very nature. The first is that, that he's now heir of all things. And, and this is important because in the beginning, and, and I don't know if you know this, if you're new to Christianity or you're not a Christian at all, but this is what we believe. Jesus has always been uh, in at least his godly form, but he was born a couple thousand years ago as Jesus. But, but the being that we know as Jesus now has always been from, from ever, forever, forever and ever, infinitely back, Jesus has been uh, in some form. And, and he gave up this place that he had sitting in heaven as God himself. And, and he gave all that up to come to earth. 
And what we believe as Christians is that God is in three forms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call it the Trinity. Maybe you've heard that term before. I don't have time to get into it this morning. But that means that Jesus is fully God and he's sitting in heaven and he makes the conscious decision to come out of heaven to earth. We'll see why, at least in part, he did that in just a minute. But when he did it, he gave up everything, right? Because he was sitting in a perfect place of power, ruling over all creation, and he gave all of that up. And we see that now, and this is so important, now he's regained it. He's become heir of all things, which is to say he now has authority and power over all. This word heir is used in the Old Testament when God, uh, I don't know if you know this story, but, but God gives the, the Jewish people this land that we refer to often as the promised land. And he promises this to one of his, his people and, and, and then that becomes a major family and that becomes a, a nation. And, and when they finally move into the land, God divvies up that land between these 12 tribes who come from these 12 brothers. And, and that word for what, that they use for dividing up that land is is the same word for heir here. And and what God is saying to us, and it's more clear in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, you can read it, is that now all things are under the feet of Jesus. He left his privilege as having power over everything, that, that, that place that he had. It was his because he's God. And he stepped down to earth and he gave it all up, but now he's regained it. And even further, this is so crazy, like, and through whom also he made the universe. I mean, uh, Jesus is the creator of all things. We don't really think about that. I mean, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. I mean, Jesus has power over all, and, and Jesus, this is crazy, he created everything. I think we should see it like this. The baby who laid in the manger was the being who created the animals. The baby who laid in the manger was the being who created the animals. And that never changed. But here's, here's what the problem is. Um, this will make sense to people younger than me and not people older than me. But uh, we, see, we see Jesus a lot like Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights. Oh, it made sense to most of you. Uh, and the rest of you have a more holy movie taste than you other people here. I've, I've never seen the movie, but I have seen this scene where, where they're doing Christmas prayer. And Ricky Bobby is this uh, very southern race car driver, uh, very famous. And he starts praying this way. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always, always delicious Taco Bell. So that's how it begins. And, and then there's this argument um, uh, that takes place at the table because people are like, well, you don't have to call him baby Jesus anymore. You know he grew up and he says this, okay, dear eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant and so cuddly, but still omnipotent. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million. Woo, uh, just like that. And that's Will Farrell, if you didn't know. And, and it's this crazy scene because, because people are like, well, you know he grew up and he had a beard, right? Like you understand that eventually he became an adult. But often at Christmas, we get so locked into the birth story that we forget who was actually born. 
Yes, he was eight pounds, six ounces or so, right? I mean, he was a real baby. He was an infant. He was completely helpless. He was fully human. Uh, he relied on his mom and dad to change his diapers and to feed him. All of those things are absolutely 100% true. And if you don't think about those things, then you're thinking about Jesus incorrectly. But I think what happens at Christmas, maybe more than any other time of the year, is that we disconnect the great being who created the universe from the baby who was born. I left two nativities, uh, Jesus, um, the Jesus pieces from nativities right back off stage just now, and I'm not going to go get them, but we have two nativities. I'd have like 100 nativities uh, in our house if, if, if my wife was more spiritual or something, but uh, she's against it, um, and, and so she thinks we should be limited in the amount of Jesus we have in our house, um, and it's funny because I hate clutter almost the whole year, and then Christmas comes, and I'm like, I got this toy when I was three years old, and it's halfway broken, but let's put it on the mantle, um, you know, and so I become like a different person at the Christmas season. I want all the nativities out, but we have two that are out, and I'll show them to you after church. Um, but one of them I usually don't like very much because, because it's, it's big and it's, uh, I don't even know the material, but it's, it's very gaudy in nature and Jesus is wrapped in gold and his parents have gold on them. And, and then we have this other one that my great-grandma um, many years ago actually got, uh, I don't know if she bought it for me, but I've ended up with it, in Jerusalem and it's made of, uh, olive tree wood, and it's just so simple and plain, and some guy chiseled it by hand, you know. And, and I usually like the, the little chiseled one because to me it's like, oh, how humble is Jesus? But this Christmas, because I'm doing this series, I've, I've liked the other one better because I think we have this tendency at Christmas to just whittle Jesus down too far. And to forget, like I said, that the baby who laid in a manger was the same one who created the animals. And so it's easy to look at this birth of Jesus and say, wow, it's really cool that the heavens shone the glory of God and the angels declared things. And, and what we do is we're really impressed by everything that surrounds Jesus at the Christmas story. But we're not really impressed by Jesus because he's just laying there crying in a manger. But when we remember that he now sits ruling over everything, and not only that, he is in fact the one who created all, then I think it reminds us of how glorious his birth to earth was. How glorious of an event it was that he creator of all would come would come to earth and and hebrews 1 3 moves on and says something else that's so incredible the sun is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven we're talking about glory, and we've been talking about glory a lot at this church, and so it uh, is important that we pay attention to this phrase, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. This word radiance translates a word uh, that is only here used in the New Testament. That's fascinating in and of itself, but it means splendor or intense brightness. It's an interesting terminology, isn't it? When you think about Christmas and how humble it was, 
how Jesus is laying in a manger, how Jesus' family is spending big chunk of his childhood running for their lives um, because Jesus is being hunted and because there's evil rulers and emperors that are reigning at the time. Uh, it's an interesting word because of, of, of the just story that we have about Jesus where, where he spends the majority of his life doing normal person things as far as we can tell in scripture. Not doing ministry, uh, working a normal job, all of those things. But yet through it all, in the midst of it all, he was the better form of communication between God and people because he is the brightness or the radiance of God's glory. And what we know is that that in Jesus, God's glory came to earth, but like it had been for thousands of years, God's glory was veiled. As I said last week, just briefly, in the Old Testament, when we see these, these amazing instances of God revealing himself to people in fire, for example, we see that God veils his presence with a cloud most often. And here in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. But again, it's veiled by his flesh. We sing that in a Christmas song. Veiled the incarnate deity. And and it's so interesting because, because what it says is that while Jesus veiled his glory in flesh, he still is the perfect representation of all that makes God better than humankind. And there's an instance in his life when, when that glory is, is, is unveiled. In the transfiguration story, as we call it, Jesus takes three of his followers, his disciples, up on a mountain. And I get a grin because uh, there's two disciples in one of the stories that we read in, G- in, in Hazel's Bible. And, and so now she's coined this new phrase for two disciples, which is just uh, two disciples. Uh, and I like it. And so Jesus takes the three disciples up on this mountain with him. And, and they're up on this mountain and all of a sudden God shows up and, and the, the veil of Jesus' flesh is like, is just removed for a second. And they see Jesus in his glory and they fall down because they're scared. And Peter gets all tongue twisted because he's just like, whoa. And he's like, we should stay here forever. And, and it's like this moment where we see how glorious Jesus is. And this is the same Jesus who was born and laid in a manger at Christmas, beginning a new form of communication between God and man. Luke 9.29 reveals to us that, that transfiguration story. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright As a flash of lightning, the radiance of God's glory was revealed in Jesus. In fact, in the book of John, a a book that we'll look at next week, John is all about talking about how glorious Jesus is. In fact, we know, I would say mainly, that Jesus is God in human form because of what the author named John wrote for us. And in John 2.11, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus turns water into wine in a pretty famous story. And then it says this, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The life of Jesus was a revelation of the glory of God and it all began at Christmas, the first Christmas. If you want to know what makes God infinitely better than humans, then you need to look at the life of Jesus. 
And, and while that was a slow revelation, not like fire on a mountain, but a slow revelation, the miracles, the teachings, the healings, which are miracles, the walking on water, all of it shows us in a way that we can understand how much greater God is than us. And then this other phrase, oh man, this is so good too, the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the exact representation of his being because he's God in human form. We'll talk more about that next week. But this word that translates representation is is again only found here in the New Testament, but it's a word that originally referred to uh, the uh, instrument used for engraving something. So if you were engraving like a piece of metal and, and you were saying, look, this is what you look like and I'm engraving, it was used for the instrument and then eventually over time, as words will do, it, was, it began to be used for the actual engraving itself and, and then uh, over time, it was, it, it was really, uh, it kind of changed meanings again and, and people would use it for like the inscription of coins and like how you can see the likeness of an emperor or in our case, a president on a coin. And then, you know, kind of out of all of that, we see this idea that people would use it to refer to the way, and I love this, that, that a parent can see themselves in their children. Um, Keith Urban has a great song where, where he's singing about how the older he gets, the more he sees him, his dad and himself. And, uh, and, he, and he's talking about his dad and how he loves his dad and respects his dad, et cetera, et cetera. But, but like how the good things he sees in himself when he looks in a mirror uh, are a reflection of his dad. And, um, and I hope that's true for me someday. But, but this, I think, is illustrated through this, this pic- these pictures they're going to put up here. Oh, man, you can't see it very well. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, I'll show you this too later. Um, but this is me on the left when I was about three years old. And this is Hazel, um, who's two months, uh, two years and three months old. She would be a big two-month-old baby. Um, <laughs> two years and three months old. And, and when you look at us, it's incredible. I'm like, I mean, she, don't tell her I said this, but she has messed up ears right here. Uh, and I just thought somebody dropped me on my head or something when I was a kid because I have them. And it's like, oh, you too? You know, like, what's, like, oh, sorry. At least she'll have long hair if she chooses, which wouldn't work out as well for me. I wouldn't look good like that. Um, but, but you see so clearly, if we had a better way of projecting, but you would see so clearly like Hazel and me, it's not hard to see. It's not as clear when you look at me as an adult, but as a kid, it's like, wow, that's, are you siblings? And, and this, is, this is what Jesus was, was for God. When you look at the life of Jesus, you, you just begin to understand what God looks like. And that's one of the things that makes his birth so incredible. Because when he was born, God had a new and better form of communication between himself and people. And he said, hey, look, here's what I'm like. Man, and if you want to understand what God is like, you just need to read the story of Jesus. They're in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the beginning of the New Testament. In Colossians 1.15, it says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. I love how the KJV, to, uh, the King James Version, takes these, these, this, these two phrases and, and translates them. Uh, it, says, it says about Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image 
of his person. I think that if we're going to glorify God at Christmas, then we have to remember who Jesus is. I would say it this way. We will glorify God lightly if we don't view Jesus rightly. And we will glorify God brightly if we do view Jesus rightly. I think this is so important because we just look at him and he's like, oh, there's cool stuff going on all around him. But, But we forget that the cool part of the Christmas story is Jesus. It's not the lights in the sky. It's not the angels. It's not the prophecy. It's not people seeing uh, manifestations of God's glory. It's not people randomly walking up and going, whoa, I've been waiting for this moment my entire life, which happens. It's Jesus. He's the cool part of the story because he is God's new and better form of communication to earth. And it even says here that he sustains all things by his powerful word. F.F. Bruce says about this, he upholds the universe not like Atlas supporting a dead weight on his shoulders but as one who carries all things forward on their appointed course the reality of jesus is that jesus is directing all of created history towards its climax that's what he's currently doing and you cannot disconnect that from the birth of a of a baby a couple thousand years ago this is the same person the same being then it says he provided purification for our sins. And I know we don't like to talk about it. It almost seems gruesome. The, the one day a year when we don't take communion is the, is the service that's closest to Christmas, which will be the day, uh, Christmas Eve this year, when we're dedicating children. We won't celebrate communion because it just feels a little odd to, to do for some reason. Oh, we don't do it on Easter. There's two days a year when we don't do the communion. Um, but... But we can't separate the story of Jesus' birth from the story of his death. When Jesus was born, he was already on a rescue mission to save you and I from our sins. And this language is wrapped up in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the people would sin and they'd have to purify themselves through killing animals. And they'd have to purify purify themselves through through a bunch of other sacrifices. And a priest would have to go in and kill an animal and sprinkle blood everywhere. It was all this crazy, this crazy stuff that you had to do. And the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that that Jesus the Son has come in order to do that for us. The reality is you and I, we we do things that are bad. We do things that are evil even. We don't like that word. We think about other things as evil, other people as evil. We think about world leaders as evil. But we do things that are evil. We do things that we know as soon as we do them were awful. They were were aimed at hurting people, at tearing people down. Uh, They were bad in every sense of the word. And God knew that. And the reason that Jesus came is in large part for the glory of God through the purification of our sins. He came so that he could die a horrific spiritual and physical death on a cross so that you and I could accept that gift and be forgiven, purified of our sins. And when you think about the baby laying in the manger, you can't not think about how he came and laid in that manger in order that someday, in about 33 years after that moment, he would die for you and I's sins. Because if you don't view Jesus rightly, then you won't glorify God brightly. That's the reality And not only that, but now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In John 17, 15, it says, this is Jesus praying. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus sat in glory before he was born, and he sits in glory again at the right hand of the Father. And if being an heir shows his power, then sitting at the right hand of the Father shows that he deserves praise. 
In Hebrews 2.9, it's going to say that now he's crowned with glory. And it's so easy to forget that while Jesus laid in a manger and was surrounded by animals and he was fully human and, and he was crying and, and he, he probably was colicky at some point. I mean, all of these things. While that is absolutely true, he is no longer sitting in a manger. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father of heaven in a place that deserves praise because it's a place of power and honor. I want to say it again. We will glorify God lightly if we don't view Jesus rightly. But we will glorify God brightly if we do view him rightly. And, and this Christmas, I'm telling you, you'll read about the birth and you'll look at the angels and say, that's all really cool. That's really great. I mean, it's awesome that, that, that he was born of a virgin and look at all this crazy stuff that surrounded him. But what will really cause you to glorify God when you experience the glory of the Christmas story is frankly taking your eyes off of the things that surround Jesus and placing them on the greatness of Jesus. I mean, I just, I just put this down in a bunch of P words. I don't know if it matters to you. Jesus is privileged. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is perfect in his representation of God. Jesus fulfilled his purpose of purifying. And Jesus sits in a position of praise. And all of that says to us that this is a glorious being whose glory ought to be expressed. And so what I need you to understand is, is just so clearly, I think, that you're, you're going to go through the motions again this Christmas, going to your parties, eating your food, doing the fun stuff that you like to do, being more impressed by the turkey that you eat and the lights that you look at when you go to the zoo than you will Jesus if you don't start to view him correctly. You'll do a great job of glorifying, of praising, of honoring everything that surrounds the birth of Jesus this Christmas if you don't view Jesus rightly. You'll celebrate family, you'll celebrate food, you'll celebrate pretty lights and pretty trees, you'll celebrate all of the stuff that surrounds Jesus. But you won't glorify God if you don't view Jesus rightly. And so let me say my little rhyme once again. We will glorify God lightly if we don't view Jesus rightly. But we will glorify God brightly if we do view Jesus rightly. Let me pray that you'll do that this Christmas season. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for, for being so like Ricky Bobby sometimes at the Christmas season, God. Um, it seems like there's times of year, like Easter, God, when we really think about your greatness and your splendor. But Jesus, at Christmas, it's really easy to forget it. And it's sad that we do. Because, God, as I said, I mean, it's, it's clear scripturally that the same being who laid in the manger is the one that created the animals. And, and God, I want us to express your glory this Christmas. Lord, I want us to, to really celebrate your birth and not all the things that we like to do, which is really just a celebration of us, God. And so I'm praying, God, that we would all, who are here, those who will listen online, we will all view you rightly. And God, I know that for some people, maybe they've never thought about who you are. And, and God, there's people who will listen online, there's people maybe sitting in front of me right now, Jesus, who, who just thought, well, Jesus' birth was important because he changed history, because uh, we, we sometimes 
use dates differently before and after his birth and uh, all these things. But Lord, it's so much more than that. And I pray that maybe for the first time today, they would not just mentally understand that that's what we teach as Christians, that you are God and you came here, but they would understand it in their souls that when you were born, it, it was something incredible because you were the creator and sustainer of the universe, the exact representation of God. And Lord, for, for the, many of us, uh, it's not a first time thing. It's that we just so easily forget uh, who you are. And, and we think about how great angels are and we think about how cool it is that somebody was born to a virgin and, and all of those things. But, but we, we kind of disconnect you, Jesus, laying in a manger from you, Jesus, glorified and sitting in heaven. And I pray that, that you would challenge that in our souls uh, this Christmas season so that we may glorify you, God, brightly. I pray these things in your name. Amen.